First of all, welcome Paul McCauley. Thank you for joining us on the Cood Street Podcast. Hi, and welcome to Brighton. <laughs> it's another what, bright, blustery day. Do you come down this way often? It certainly is. Well, you know, they call Brighton London by the sea, but no, we don't get down that often because I mostly stay in my room uh, working uh, with the curtains closed yeah. and my back to the window. Uh, so I should get down more often, but uh, I don't. Yeah. But I actually, mm. I, when I was a kid, uh, I had family down the south coast here in a place called Bognor Regis, mm. uh, which is uh, famous for being called Bognor Regis because it's a ridiculous name. Um, <laughs> and also famous because I forgot which king was ill there. Was it George, George V? Anyway, he said Bugger Bognor because he was taken down there for his health and didn't like it. <laughs> um, the only other claim to fame is that James Joyce got married there, yeah. Nora, Nora Barnacle. Mm. But, uh, I had family there, so we used to come on the holiday when I was a kid in the 60s. So. Vague of memories of the pier in Brighton when it was still a pier and things like that, as opposed to the sad or rather romantic ruin of, that it is now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, one of the questions that I wanted to, I was, I was talking to Steve Baxter yesterday and we were talking about something that both of you have been involved in, which is the solar system. I mean, yeah. just, well, <laughs> well, I think well, we're all actively involved in the solar system, Gary. Well, that's true, but, uh, but this uh, what seemed to me to be a movement in the last 10 years or so of pulling back from interstellar travel and doing a mm-hmm. lot of exploration here. And there were two ways of interpreting that. One was maybe it's a kind of mundane SF thing where we know we're not going to get to another star system, so we'll just see what we can do here. And Steve's argument, and he mentioned your name, was that we've just discovered in the last 20 years how much more interesting the solar system is than we thought it was. Well, that's exactly right, and that's why I was writing the Quiet War books. Well, it's one of the inspirations for writing the Quiet mm-hmm. War books, with all these fabulous images from um, Cassini and Juno and, well, Viking and mm-hmm. Pioneer even as well. And uh, if you look at the, you know, the Saturn system, you've got the variety there, which is more of a variety than, for instance, Isaac Asimov had in his Federation you know, mm-hmm. planets, for instance. It's, it's huge numbers of different landscapes with different his wildly different histories you know and uh, also uh, the fact is that it's not sort of uh, as the our moon is a kind of stony desert is actually very dynamic mm-hmm. uh, you know you've got the titan is the equivalent of earth you know you've got rivers and giant sand dunes okay the rivers are made and lakes are made out of ethane and the giant sand dunes are frozen petroleum but still uh-huh. they look like earth landforms so you've got those analogs, but you've also got things like you know the ocean under Europa uh, around Jupiter, and you've mm-hmm. got the uh, 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 what is probably a sea under Enceladus as well, and you've got the dynamics of the rings, which is uh, rather fabulous as well, and you've got uh, Yaptus, and you've got uh, various weird little moons as well. So you've got all these different landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things was what, uh, what would it look like from a human's perspective and if you put a human there what, on a ri- specific ridge that you could see uh, in an image from Cassini and you can locate mm. using the map the global maps that they've made for instance of Dione okay so here's this crater Romulus crater what does it look like uh-huh. if you're looking down into it and you can, you can see you can extrapolate and then you think well how did she get there um, what is she thinking mm-hmm. and uh, if people are living there, how does it affect them? And how, how would they be living there? So that started up a kind of dialogue with all the kind of colonization um, and colonialization um, stuff that's in science fiction that is in you know, one of the big strands of science fiction thought of what do we do with other planets mm. and what do we do with, if we uh, set up colonies, what is their relationship with Earth? And you have what the common dynamic is kind of the American revolution dynamic 
you know, the colonies, mm. the colonies get uppity, <laughs> and the crotchety <laughs> ailing parent, yeah. you know, um, tries to subdue them, and then there's a crisis, and so on. You get something new out of it, and uh, the French Revolution and idealism is all mixed in there as well, and sure. it's a fabulous story and a very strong story. So, so you know, uh, a mm. lot of it, you know, from Heinlein to Kim Stanley Robinson, you've got that. You've got the front thing. thing. So I, th- I thought, well, let's do it from a British Empire kind of perspective, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and uh, do that kind, kind of quiet, quiet. Um, although there, there, you know, there is a war, but it's a war of conquest, and then mm. there's the, the colonization. It changes the colonizers as much as the colonials, you know. Um, because if you wander around Brighton, you know you're going to see the influence of all kinds of things. You know, I was an Indian. I was in an Indian restaurant last night. You know, that's a mm-hmm. you know immediate thing. We drink lots of tea and other immediate things. So I, so I was playing around all those kind of ideas, and then having a kind of not quite peaceful, but but a more peaceful resolution of the conflict between the two things. Where there was so much intermixing that they um, eventually, you know, they started to think like each other, and so you could uh, separate more mm-hmm. as a family than as antagonists. So there was all that kind of thinking coming from that as well. Speaking of empires, did you mm. did you get any feedback from Brazilians? <laughs> not so much. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, because I'm not published in Brazil, mm. uh, and they haven't been published in Portuguese either. Although I did have some feedback on uh, a book which is uh, In the Mind of the Whale, which is yeah. kind of set 1500 years later, but also before the Quiet War as well. Um, uh, about the child of one of the characters in the child war uh, in, the, in the quiet war and that was set in in brazil in the sort of back country mm-hmm. brazil. and i got some nice feedback from brazilians oh, there which is good never been to brazil so i had to kind of not make it all up but imagine it but, but part of the point of of the story that was set in brazil was it wasn't actually brazil it was kind of brazil of the mines mm-hmm. um this is not an excuse but it was like a heightened realism yeah. of brazil as it were a, a dream brazil um so no, I'd love to actually uh, get some more uh, input from Brazil. I just, I just thought Brazil is such an interesting country. It's got all these resources. It's got a very young population, mm-hmm. and it has got this kind of. There is a different axis in the world now, setting up from, between Brazil and China and that so seems on, to be and uh, Australasia. Um, so I thought that you know, again with the quiet, well, well, I've always been interested in that kind of thing anyway. Sort of getting away from the American-dominated thing, or having that thing if you're British of having all the artifacts go back to the British Museum, right? You know, yeah. Um, but instead, doing something else. Yeah. Do you think there's a feeling that with all of the space exploration, well, solar system exploration of the last thirty years, that the solar system is a more achievable, practical? Possibility of some some of that we might actually occupy in some kind of way. Well, we still haven't got anywhere past the moon, and that was forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't got out of low Earth orbit uh, for forty odd years, and it's still difficult to get up to there. I mean, the problem is getting stuff up there. Once you've got the stuff up there, it's not too bad. Um, but it's getting all the human. If, if you're having human exploration, this is mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, then it's it's getting all this it's getting all the baggage out. Then we still just don't have the heavy lifters to get all that stuff into orbit uh, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Although you know NASA has these tentative plans to go and visit a, a near Earth asteroid and things like that. Um, it's nothing that you know robots couldn't do, but it's just an interesting market that yeah, sure. something mm-hmm. to show that we can actually get this stuff done. And they are building a new generation of spacecraft, which does look remarkably like a beefed up Apollo capsule. But still, you know, <laughs> <laughs> be fun. Right. But you know, we do have all these robots doing things, and we have robots around orbiting every planet just about now. Um, 
we have New Horizons heading out to Pluto, which will get there in a couple of years, mm -hmm. and that's going to be really exciting to do the flight through, and it's going to carry on and hopefully go and see stuff further out as well. Yeah. Um, so we've been, you know, as by proxy, we've been yes. everywhere, and we can, you know, get on the internet and look at uh, Martian landscapes being mm -hmm. down, more or less live in quote marks because there's a sure. delay and so on, and there's a processing lag as well. But you can see all this, you know, the, all this stuff is very open and. and, and uh, anybody in the public can see all these fabulous landscapes and, and the interesting thing for instance about Spirit and Opportunity rovers is their cameras were just about the height of a human being standing mm -hmm. upright on Mars so you're getting a human's perspective of those mm -hmm. landscapes for the first time as opposed to the Vikings which were giving sure. you a, a much as if you're sitting in a Volkswagen Beetle or something like that <laughs> which wasn't going anywhere it was parked and you were just <laughs> able to look around you and that was it but you, you know the Spirit and Opportunity I think caught the imagination partly because it was like even if you didn't realise that that's how you were seeing Mars, you had this sort of unconscious feedback of that is what it would be looking like if you were standing there. So that's what we're getting at the moment. Mm -hmm. But to get actually people standing there is going to take a bit more um, enterprise. So there's some, you know, you've got some interesting um, proposals like, you know, the one-way thing to Mars. Mm. Um, uh, just send people there and don't bother bringing them back, but they have to live there or die there. And you've got well, huge numbers of people volunteering for that. Uh, so there's there is interest. It may be a minority interested, but it's a significant minority. Yeah. And again, what we don't have is a risk culture in space. You know, NASA and so on, are all, and ESA and so on, are very very cautious about um, doing things. And the Soviets um, are gone, so they're not doing. Well, they, the Soviet, they have no, the Soviets, the Soviets are already way up in space at the moment in the Western world. The Chinese, perhaps, mm -hmm. are going to be more interesting in that aspect. We don't know. You know, this might be a calumny on the Chinese way of thinking, but um, maybe they'll be taking more risks. They're certainly doing very interesting manoeuvres with things and rendezvous with um, unmanned spacecraft at the moment, attaching, detaching, going round, coming back. Nobody's quite sure what they're doing. They're sort of promising to do big things. The Indians are sending. Um, um, a spacecraft to Mars and they're making noises about sending people to the moon the Chinese I think definitely want to send people mm -hmm. to the moon um, so there's that and then there's the private enterprise um, you know the Elon Musk who's behind that um, mm -hmm. one way Mars ticket thing and so on or sending people around Mars and coming back again just looping doing it the way that Apollo 8 looped around the moon I don't think that's particularly interesting to you, <laughs> Although, because you, you know you're not going to see that much. But it's Absolutely. a marker, isn't it? The fact that people are now thinking and talking about these things. Yeah. Whether this is a kind of um, boomer, you know, boomer generation thing, and these guys are, are like late boomer generation. They just mm -hmm. happen to have got all, a lot of money, so they can do all these dreams. I don't know, but. Uh, have you seen that little film called Europa Report? Not yet, it's, no. It's very I interesting. Didn't. They didn't have the budget for the kind of special mm -hmm. effects that Gravity has. But the fact that it was a privately funded mm -hmm. mission to Europa, which is something that most science fiction movie makers would never think yeah. of, but it's a very logical thing. And it's done, um, in a way, it's, 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 it's more reminiscent of uh, 2001, I suppose, than anything else. But it's very gritty. It's kind of a... And the thing that struck me about the imagery in that, and when I was saying, which is like I say, not expensive but uh, but believable, is I kept thinking of all the landscape descriptions in the Quiet War series, which which are just you seem to be having a lot of fun doing that. But uh, you mentioned Asimov and Clark, and all they had to go on at that time were Chesley Bonestell illustrations, uh, and and you, now you're watching movies, you're watching this, and you're realizing those early '50s astronomical art paintings are now photographs. <laughs> Yeah. We actually can look at those uh, 
landscapes and imagine what it would be like there. Well, so there's still lots of great space art that's coming out from um, uh, the images that are being beamed back mm. and then reinterpreting and then and again giving a human's perspective and right. looking back at uh, from the surface of various moons of Saturn and Jupiter sure. as well. So, the, so that's um, so there's there's that. But yes, they are a lot more accurate. And, um, well, I mean, one of the things I was interested in in the Quiet War, again, with the human thing, is the kind of psychogeography and a kind of drift thing of just having people walking everywhere. Because a lot of these moons are really small, yeah. and the gravity is pretty light, but, you know, you can, you can work out ways of, of, of walking on them. So you can actually, you know, circumnavigate the moon. Or you can build a railway right around these mm. moons, you know. It's kind of an easy thing to do as well. So if you get tired, it's kind of a Swiss idea. You can <laughs> go up the mountains in the railway and then walk back down, that kind of thing. So there, there are all these fantastic landscapes and landforms. You know, huge, and this is another thing that we didn't quite get, is, 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 is the size of the landscapes on these moons, you know. Yaptas mm. um, uh, has got a huge equatorial mountain girdle, and some of these mountains are bigger than most of the mountains on Mars or Earth mm. for instance you know mm. um, they're, but they're very gentle slopes so it's sort of one of those problems they're so big it's difficult to know but they don't actually look big almost but, uh, hmm? yeah, they're so big they almost don't look big yeah that's right it's difficult to locate where you yeah. are in terms, so you don't have that kind of jagged thing that we have with tectonic upthrusts although yeah. you know again with Europa you do have these mm. kind of big icy place. I haven't seen the movie, I imagine it probably makes something um, in the box some, yeah. and things. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of fun too. And the fact is, you know, CGI, you, you, I've seen Gravity, because so, yeah. it came out late in Britain, but I managed to see a preview. And yeah, you can do all these things, and then the camera puts you right there from perspective. It's in, in fact, that's one of the director's choices, which makes the film so good, is it, you know, it zooms in inside the helmet of <coughs> Sandra Bullock yes. at one point, and then draws back to show... Uh, dwindling away against the starry yes. landscape, which is a fantastic science fiction change of scale, sense <laughs> of wonder thing. But it's not a science fiction film, in my opinion. It's using science fiction tools like that. And the fact well, is, you know, those have migrated <laughs> out now, and we're going to have to get used to that. The fact, you know, that. Um, but you know, these were kind of the, the tools we invented, and those are being used to tell different stories sure. now. So that's that's kind of my sense uh, of that interesting film, because that's an interesting debate to say it's not a science fiction film because. I think a lot of the grief they're getting about uh, about the impossibilities, for mm. example, of getting you know, from uh, from the Hubble to the space station. Had they gone ahead and made a science fiction movie and simply invented uh, a space station, they could have worked out the orbital. In other words, the same movie yeah. could happen, and it would be more credible as a science fiction movie than it is as a non-science mm. fiction movie. Well, they made decisions. Um, everybody's heard of the shuttle, mm. so they yeah. used the shuttle, which is no longer in use. So mm -hmm. instantly, you know, it's an alternate history for right. start. And they used the Hubble, I think, because everybody's heard of the Hubble right. telescope, and everybody knows the shuttle at one point repaired the Hubble telescope. So it's a narrative thing that people are familiar with. So they could have just made up a, sh a satellite name. It didn't have to be the Hubble, but they chose that. I guess know, that's yeah. Um, and if it was a realistic movie, you need a realistic, for instance, it takes six hours to get in, out of one of those suits. Mm -hmm. um, so it had been a very long movie. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you know, if you're, if you're in uh, the kind of suit that Sandra Bullock was in towards the end, for instance, it's not, it's not the kind of rigid suit, shell suit that you have for extra vehicle vehicular mm -hmm. activity so she wouldn't be able to move her fingers for instance because it would have ballooned up with the air pressure inside right. so yeah. there's all that it's a flight suit she was wearing basically yeah, right. so there's tons of things like that and it's one of the problems that you have with hard science fiction as well that people forget what you're actually doing they forget the fiction bit mm -hmm. and you're saying well no we're going to cut these facts down and we're going to lead around them you know because we want to tell a story um, and yeah sometimes the facts get in the way of the story mm -hmm. we're not going to you know obviously you're not going to put um I don't know, monsters made out of diamonds on um, <laughs> Titan or, you know, giant slugs 
I suppose you could. Why now not? that you've said that, somebody will. People always do. <laughs> yeah, it's always slugs on time because it's cold and <laughs> right. slugs move slowly. You know, but if you ever seen a slug in the cold, they don't move at all, do you, folks? Um, yeah. But you know, you can do all that stuff, but it's it's kind of retro. But um, you don't need to do that. The landscapes, obviously, but with the technology, you do a bit really mm. because it is slow and clumsy. It is part of the problem of living in space at the moment. You know, in the Quiet War, I have this thing where they just have frames assemble the suit around them. You don't. Don't even worry about mm. the fact that the um, suit is two hundred degrees hotter than the surface they're walking on. Yeah. For instance, <laughs> nobody's picked me up on that. <laughs> you know, because if you stand still, you should just basically melt yourself <laughs> into the frozen ice or lose all your heat, turn into a star. How do you do that? You know, the amount of power you need to keep. You just go. Well, let's just assume that this technology is enough. So, hey, magic technology. You know, mm. whistle it up from Acme Technology, the Acme Technology Limited, and there you go. So you have all these things that you kind of lead a little bit sure. because. Um, if you didn't, the novel would be entirely about that. Yeah. And there are novels entirely about that. You know, there are there are realistic novels about space travel which do take all that stuff mm-hmm. on board. And, and part of the mess of those novels is how hard it is. But then you have to say, well, let's let's get past the hard bit and let's get yeah. onto the um, interesting bit of putting people there and just make an assumption. So you have to go with that assumption. Do you think it's harder to write hard science fiction than it was fifty years ago? Yeah, I don't like the term hard science. I know I'm, I'm, I'm no, no, I mean, love the term hard curious, science yeah, fiction. Yeah. Years ago, uh, in Interzone, there was an editorial written by David Pringle and Colin mm. Greenland about radical hard science fiction, yeah, which was that. to say that um, you know we wanted to use the tools of hard science fiction. We want to use do different stuff with it. The stuff I'm writing about, really, and I picked up on that. And Steve Baxter and I picked up on that both actually a little bit. Um, and then I think Gardner, this is history, you know, Gardner as well turned it into the mm. space opera, which is something rather different. But the thing that I'm trying to do with my fiction mostly is to look at how um, use of science um, changes the way people think, the way people behave, how they, you know, how they use science in their lives and how that affects their lives rather than the science itself. And yeah, there are lots of discourses on on how the landscapes form and things like that. Mm. But um, you get that in a Bruce Chatwin book as well, you know. <laughs> If you you know you read read some of his books, he's going on about the the, the landscapes and how that forms the, the people's uh, the people who lives them and uh, how that feeds back and so on and so forth. Um, so um, it's nothing that's not actually not found outside science fiction quite. Oh quite yeah, because the yeah. classical travel literature going back probably to yeah. Marco Polo is full of landscapes, yeah. which is very useful yeah. uh, because it's, yeah. uh, at that point there wasn't a photographic record. Uh, so yeah, somebody has said. Uh, I, I had a conversation with Kluth once about the relationship of travel literature to science mm. fiction because essentially a good deal of travel literature was imaginary anyway or semi-imaginary yeah. so to some extent you're simply taking uh, you're extrapolating from what's now visible and that's largely what a lot of travel writers have always done that's right and it's mixed in with things like Prester John as well or oh, yeah, the um, medieval too. maps which put Jerusalem in the centre of the world and had, you know, the further away got from Jerusalem the more fantastic it was you know here be monsters and all the rest of it yeah. um, yes there's, there's a certain amount of that and there's, uh, in the quiet world I, t- I took the deliberate strategy of all the characters uh, are, are not people who are not colonists they don't live Natural, you know, they, they come mm. to inhabit those landscapes, but they weren't born there. So they're seeing that society, the, the society that's being conquered and colonized, from the outside, all of them. And, and they all have different reactions to it. But they all of them, some, some part of that rubs off on them. So some go deeper into it. Macy Minot, for instance, is more or less becomes an outer by default, yet she still has a perspective of an outsider. 
she still looks at things differently and, and tries to imagine, you know, how her partner, who isn't out of you know, one of the colonies, right. uh, you know, thinks. And they still little sparks and clashes of, of just because of the different way they do things, you know. And the way, you know, they just send children lolloping off into the landscapes, which is completely and utterly deadly. Yeah. You know, which <laughs> is, is uh, something that you go, whoa, wait a minute, you know, you're not sending those kids out into the fantastic Brighton surf we've got at the moment because of all the winds blowing up, huge yeah. comas would be that equivalent of like, hey, kids, put wetsuits on, let's yeah. go out there, you know. <laughs> um, so there is that there is that kind of outsized perception, and that was right from the beginning. That was a very deliberate policy of mine to do that, and that is part that's kind of I guess the travel writing thing because the way of exploring it is to not be on the inside but look at, look at it from the outside. Mm. So you're comparing it with what you know with this this strange thing of how people do things slightly differently, and the very slight differences make actually huge perspective changes quite often. There was an interesting <clears throat> evenings empires. Now evenings empires is not out in the states, is it? No. Okay. No. Which is a crime. Well. Um, but uh, that struck me as being interesting because it seemed to me a much more focused adventure story than uh, because the the kind of colonialist backdrop is there. Mm. But the first couple of, first couple of chapters just reminded me of nothing so much as the stars my destination. Yeah, it was well. It's uh, and also it's, it was kidnapped as well. Well, so yeah, it's part of the uh, the inspiration I got to say okay. for it too. Um, that is told from the perspective of some somebody uh, who has grown up in, mm. in the solar system. Well, actually, on a spaceship more than in, in, in landscape. So again, he sees everything in terms of spaceship terms. So mm. everything is a, you know the floor is a deck. The ceilings are overheads. So every door is a hatch. He's mm. always worried about going through doors because you don't know what's on the other side. If they're closed, if they're closed doors in a spaceship, it means trouble on the other side, usually, mm -hmm. etc. And so on and so forth. And he, um, so he again, he has that outside perspective, but not so much. Um, and yes, I wanted to tell a kind of simple story, so it's told from one person's mm. point of view, unlike the multiple points of view um, of uh, the uh, first two books. And. I simply wanted, but it was not so much the um, backdrop of landscapes, or, uh, but more of the backdrop of history. Mm. We've got 1,500 years of human history in the solar, solar system. How does that change the solar system? How many different um, uh, empires have risen and fallen? You've got all the different cities and so on. How do they relate to each other? It's towards the end of a very decadent period. An empire has fallen, and mm -hmm. most people are living in the ruins of that and coming to terms with that. Um, Earth is in uh, trouble, and so on and so forth, uh, which is pretty much the standard view of the solar system. Two hundred in two hundred years' time, that the uh, around the John Varley um, mm -hmm. and Bruce Sterling and so on um, period, I think really. And I just wanted to say, well, no, let's push this fifteen hundred years ahead, head, and it's almost like telling in. We're back to this interstellar thing again. It's mm -hmm. like telling one of the interstellar empire things, but right. from the, using asteroids instead of planets. Mm -hmm. So the distances are smaller and more manageable, but, and yet the variety I think is still there. Again, it was partly inspired again by you know spaceships like the Dawn spaceship going around um, right. Vesta. So um, um, you could use um, you know the uh, landscapes there, um, but landscapes that have been terraformed a little bit. Yeah. You plainly are engaged by and love the the world that the science is showing us throughout the solar system but what is it now after the career you've already had that keeps drawing you back to writing science fiction what yeah is there something intrinsic to you that you, that you think it lets you do that nothing else does or yeah I think so I mean I've, I've, I've written crime novels and 
I don't like the term, term techno thriller either because I think it's a terrible term. But you know, thrillers which are kind of like the ne- I, you know, kind of thing that Neville Shute used to write, actually, or, or actually Eric Ambler too as well, which is about um, you know British guys stuck in a strange odd. Mm-hmm. A bit more um, violent than theirs, right? <laughs> <laughs> actually, if you look at Eric, Eric Ambler, they're, well, that's they're not ex- so explicit because, yeah. but they are. You know, the peril is just the same, and people right. do uh, the number, the body count in an Eric Ambler novel is actually in the background can be quite high. Um, but um, so I wrote those, but there are. St- I mean, there were, while I was doing that, I was kind of developing the Quiet War stuff in short stories mm-hmm. and so on. And there are stories, you know, you want to tell and ideas you want to articulate and science fiction has got the best tools for using those and in the science fictional mode that's where putting together more than one tool works well you know you can take a tool out science fiction use it mm-hmm. to um, tell us use it in a story outside of the genre and that's increasingly being used a lot um, what those don't do is interrogate the no. tool especially for instance time travel you just have time travel as the device yeah. you don't interrogate that's it one anymore. of the things we've talked about before on the podcast yeah so there are certain science fiction tropes that have just escaped and that they're just yeah. the narrative devices i mean the time traveler's wife and things like that or everybody knows what time travel is so it doesn't yeah. belong to science fiction well that, you know i think time travel is one of those tropes that was outside and inside at the same time mm-hmm. and it's difficult to know if the science fiction appropriated and, you, and, and introduced new wrinkles and then it went back outside again that kind of thing is um, but now you're getting parallel universes showing up all over. Yeah, there's that as well, yes. So, um, uh, and actually parallel universes imply time travel, if you want to be well, that's physics about it. Yeah. And imply all kind of infinities as well. I'm, I don't know if you've talked to Steve Baxter about the, the stuff he's doing with Terry yeah. and the Long Earth, but, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of that is happening in science fiction at the moment. If, if, you, if you have more than one, or, you can't have more than one alternate history, you have lots. Yeah, exactly. So, and if you have lots somewhere in that alternate history, there's going to be somebody who's better at doing that stuff than you are. Mm. Or it's going to be, as in the long earth stuff, it's going to be empty and then you have to explain why it's empty. Uh, yeah. um, so you get into all those kind of ideas. And that's a science fiction way of using things because you're interrogating the implications of, of, of that idea but all, if you just use but, the idea itself then it's, yeah. it's a different kind of story but, but science fiction I think yeah. is educating people to, to do that I mean you're right that the other popular media um, when they use something like Parallel Worlds what's the movie with um, Sliding Doors yeah um, and you know okay they can just barely manage two alternatives in that but the idea is there and it's almost as though I think there's a history of science fiction educa- educating the mainstream Writers of tropes that they can use without having to actually deal with the science fiction. In yeah. Well, you, you know, uh, if you're a writer, you just take you just take stuff that interests you and, mm. and, and devices you think that, that can be used to tell an interesting story, and you just take that. And you think this is a great way of saying, well, what if you make this choice in your romantic life as opposed to that choice, and then we'll, mm. we'll show that kind of thing. Um, and that's all you need. That's all you need to use it for. So you don't need to explain it. Um, I guess the same example would be, for instance, Stephen King's novel about the uh, Kennedy assassination. You know, mm-hmm. you just have this yeah. place where time is, you know, permeable, and you drop back into 1963 through it. But there's no real explanation of why. Although towards the end, you start having all these alternate world things, and you just think, "Please end the novel." <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've passed, we've flown past five endings. It's like going past. It's like being on a freeway and go, "Well, we've gone past the exit now. What do we do? There's another exit. There's another exit. There's another exit." So there's a kind of but it, it, that comes out of nowhere. Uh, um, is set up almost nowhere is set up in the novel for that. It becomes as as a kind of uh, uh, extra bolted onto the novel 
mm-hmm. rather than something that's you know integral to the story because the store most of the story is is about you know the how how the past is is uh, well it's it's almost a kind of boomer nostalgia thing isn't it you know the mm. past everything in the mm. past is so much better uh, um, and you kind of think well what a minute antibiotics <laughs> and stuff like that um, universal medical health care that kind of stuff you know you were living under the you know nuclear fear at the time mm. as well and, and so on and so forth what about if the character was black Right, how right. would they move around in 1963 then? You know? Yeah. Um, so it's almost again, it's like tourism yeah. for for rich guys, you know, yeah. um, as opposed to the kind of nitty gritty stuff of actually living in 1963. I'm not really dissing mm-hmm. Stephen King is yeah. doing something else, but it's, um, uh, but again, you know, there, there is there is that thing of um, using it for one purpose only. And having this almost like a magical fantasy well, That's what device. I mean. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's simply a device, and, and it, it can be very powerful. Yeah, and the same, for instance, you know, big, big influence in my childhood with the Narnia books, because mm-hmm. it had a really powerful idea of the wood between worlds, which had a parallel universes in it. You know, you, mm-hmm. you had, uh, you had, if you had the specific ring, you jumped in the pool, you could go to a, a, a different parallel universe, and you had uh, intrusions from one of the parallel universes mm-hmm. into another, and so on. And some of the pools were dry, where they. So it's a terrific metaphor, you know, mm-hmm. but it's a fancy metaphor as opposed to actually using quantum physics and so on to try and explain it, you know. And then if you start using actual quantum physics, you actually have to think about infinity, which uh-huh. is a huge problem with uh, any, you know, novel. How do you crown? It's bad enough trying to put the human figure into, you know, our moonscape, but trying to put the human figure into an infinity scape is... Uh, is another maybe Greg Egan's up to it, but there are very few people who can do it mm-hmm. successfully. But they, you know, if you, it's it's actually science. I guess science, one of the things that science fiction does is to say, well, let's follow this, push this as hard as we can, and that's when you get the best science fiction. Okay, here's a weird idea, but you know, let's make it, let's follow the logical implications of that and see how weird we get, and then what story does that tell? Well, that's what happens. You're right, Greg Egan. Yeah. But the problem with that, of course. And it's a problem that apparently Greg Egan has had when you get to something like the Clockwork Rocket, where you're altering physics in a way mm-hmm. that you don't understand the alteration until you learn the basic physics that are being altered. Yeah. And that's not inviting to a non-science fiction reader, yeah. uh, by and large. So the question is, how do you make that sort of thing accessible mm-hmm. to a wider audience? And, and is, is the readership of science fiction becoming more scientifically illiterate, illiterate in some way, do you think? Well, it's the general readership. Well, the general readership. I mean, the pro- one of the problems is that, you know, the implication... Uh, doing science is now much harder. You know, in, mm. in, in the early days, you had this thing of the lone scientist with the beautiful daughter and mm. the uh, boyfriend who was handy with his fists and the uh, gun to uh, iron out the kinks when the device went crazy. Um, but you did have the kind of lone inventor thing, um, mm. the backyard yeah. rocket guy. And so on, but we know now. You know, you just can't do well. You know, maybe eventually we can get to the, the technology to be sim- so simplified you can. But at the moment, you know, it is it is difficult. And you look at the papers in Nature. You know, the uh, list of um, contributors to the papers is enormous because mm-hmm. it's a difficult enterprise to do stuff. If you look at the Human Genetics Program, that was the equi- you know equivalent of the Manhattan Project for biology. And now you you have these biology problems. We have the tools to crack them, but the, um, the problems are harder. So and it becomes harder to convey the process of that. And so there's a kind of distance between what scientists do and the kind of uh, world they inhabit and the mm-hmm. uh, jargon they use uh, amongst themselves as shorthand um, and the general public. Um, and there is a 
gap problem there, but there are some, you know, there, there are still, the, the, what we do have is some fantastic science journalists and people following That's those. That's true. Uh, people like Carl Zimmer, Ed Young, and so on as well, who can take complex um, problems and, and simplify them and tell an interesting story from, from and, and not compromise the science, stay true to the science. So there's a lot of that that's... Mm. Uh, so I think science fiction can usefully use. But yeah, I mean, um, once you get, for instance, you know, we can all probably grasp Flatland, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Edward Abbott's which, uh, Flatland, which was a success, you know, fantastically successful mm -hmm. book. You know, you can imagine a two-dimensional world and once you start thinking about it, you can imagine, you know, bank vaults is just a circle drawn on the plane yeah. and you can't get mm -hmm. over the line. Yeah. Um, once you get, that's easy to think of, right? But once you start talking about um, uh, the stuff that Greg Eaton is talking about is more difficult because you can't, unless you're a mathematician, it's hard to visualise. Yeah. And so you know, have to resort to diagrams and or really complicated analogies. And oh. Yeah, it is, it is tough. And then where are the, where's the room for the human story in, all, in, in amongst all this right. as well? Which was not Although, you know, Flatland, did Flatland have much of a human story? Yeah. It had some very simplistic stories, but it was telling, it was telling, you know, it was telling a story about a different kind of way of life. Which is useful to think about, but it was perceived at the time, I think, as as mathematical fiction rather, yeah. rather than science fiction because it was sure. Or you know, but one of the most successful mm. books in, in the English language is Alice in, Alice in mm. Wonderland, yeah, and that's a mathematical, mathematical, mathematical puzzles. Mm. Um, but yeah, okay, that's they're simpler mathematical puzzles, but they're fun. Mm. So there there are ways of doing this, but yeah, it is more complicated, and and this stuff gets further and further away from ordinary human experience as sure. well. So you know, one of the things of science fiction is to sort of kind of drag that stuff back into human experience. Yeah. at the same time as well, which is, is kind of fun to do. Which I guess was a lot more doable when in Heinlein's day it was almost like packing the family station wagon and going to Mars rather than having to extrapolate an entire plausible scientific mechanism yeah. of doing it and then describing it, particularly when you now sure. know roughly what it looks like. Yeah, or, you know, like Bradbury, which just skipped the whole process more right. or less and just said, well, it's, you know, it's rocket summer, all the rockets took off. Well, he did, yeah, he didn't did. interrogate what <laughs> the rockets were, and they just went there, and there they were, and they carried on, you know, yeah. just, just skipped that bit. But, yeah, um, I suppose, and you could, I suppose, write novels like that as well. I mean, well, the, again, this comes back to my problem with being labelled hard science fiction is that it's kind of slight like pinning a target to your forehead because and the slightly the way that gravity had, had as well saying well we're going to use this real space hardware and that invites people to start picking things around sure um, but as long as the story is good you can say right well there's all these implausibilities but when you're actually watching gravity yeah. you don't no. Well, probably if you you are a NASA engineer, you probably are thinking, "Gee, you know, that's not quite right." Mm -hmm. But you don't, you know, no. as, a, as somebody in the, the audience, you don't think that's so. you, you just carried along with the flow. Yeah. One um, of the students um, I was teaching a science fiction course a few years ago, and we were the phrase "hard science fiction" emerged, and this sort of supports your points. And I realized after three or four weeks of using this term that several of my students thought hard science fiction meant stuff that's hard to read. Yeah, you know, just <laughs> there's also, there is also that problem right. as well, you know, like on hardcore porn right. and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for, you know, a certain small select <laughs> kind of audience, not you probably. So yeah. put, pinning that I'm really kind of thinking, let's get rid of that label. I think also it's like a historical label we no longer we no longer need because what was invented in thir late thirties. 40s. Mm -hmm. The kind of specific thing was specifically about Newtonian physics, really, and we're way past Newtonian physics now. Well, that's, that's what I think made now. it easier. Uh, when, yeah, when you mentioned yeah. Heinlein doing something like rocket ship Galileo, yeah. which is for young for, for young adults, all he had to worry about, 
training the readers for were basic simple principles of rocketry and sure. a little bit about orbits and a little, but uh, but now trying to talk to people about quantum mechanics yeah. or about terraforming and that sort of thing, you're, you're starting at a much more advanced level. While arguably, at least in the states, the educated public is receding from mm -hmm. from any understanding of science. Yeah, so I, I think you know uh, you almost want to use the Bradbury post or find a comfortable middle ground between the Bradbury approach and mm. the, the Greg Egan approach, both of which are valid approaches, mm. but I think yeah. the, 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 the middle ground is always more where lots of stuff can go on and the stories can actually happen but stay true to the science mm. as well. But the, you know, the, the question is how much do you skip uh, and so on, but while staying true to the science too. And, I, and, and again, as I said, going back to science journalists, I think it's perfectly doable, you know, to mm. put a human's perceptive of that kind of thing. Mm. And you just delete all this stuff, really. You don't need to put all the, a lot of the stuff in. You don't need to, I, you know, we're in the quiet war. I don't really describe any of the spaceships or how they all work and how no. big they are. I don't give dimensions. Yeah. I just say, it's a big spaceship. That's what you need <laughs> to know, you know. Or it's a really small spaceship and that's all you need to know. It's cramped. Right. Things yes. keep, you keep banging your head against things or it's, it's cramped, but it's, Bigger than it seems when you're in zero G, because you can use every available cubic centimeter of the thing, you know, and yeah. then so on and so forth. And you know, again, that's dragging stuff back from actual human experience, you know, mm. in the Apollo program or in the International Space Station. You can look at video. There's a fantastic video up on the net of the, one of the um, captains or the com commanders of the International Space Station giving it a guided tour and just showing how easy it is once you're adapted to zero G, how easy it is mm. to move around and how you know how lovely it is and you know, um, and you can get little instructional videos as well of, of how to throw up in zero G, <laughs> should you need to. But yeah, we know all this stuff now. And uh, you know, you're thinking, well, this is great material, you know, if I need it. Um, but you don't need to construct an entire book where you're showing this no, stuff as an instructional right. manual. As we used to before we went into space, you know, you had the RC Clark vignettes of, um, of on the other side of the sky, yeah, the sky that kind of thing, right. where we hadn't gone into space. So all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff was fresh and new. And he was saying, hey, when we go there in the zero G, this neat stuff will happen, right? So that's mm -hmm. hard science fiction. <clears throat> so I think, you know, it's like a fossilized term for that kind of stuff. But once you're drawing on experiences that have already happened and you're drawing on actual, you know, complicated, gnarly, knotty science and stuff like that, saying it's hard science mm -hmm. fiction, for a start, it's probably not because you're not explaining everything. Mm -hmm. So you get you get that angle of attack saying, well, you're not actually hard science fiction. I'm going, yeah, I'm not. I'm just being labeled that. Um, but you're also, um, you want to do something else with it. And I said, I find it more interesting to talk about the, you know, the, how it affects the variety of human experience and how it can increase the variety of human experience mm -hmm. again. And it's, it's, it's kind of, this kind of thing John Varley was doing, yeah, really. Right. Was John Varley labelled a hard science fiction writer? I think not. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, he's, he was being true to the, what we knew about the landscapes then. Right. You know, and, but he was having fun with them. And he was, he was um, saying, well, you know, if you put people in these landscapes, it's going to water them. And, and they're going to be look kind of weird and have these weird ideas. Um, let's interrogate that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think at least part of the, the reason that he wouldn't have been called hard SF particularly is because at least at a certain time hard SF was basically seen as technology fiction I yeah. guess. Mm -hmm. And technology doesn't feature at the forefront of his stories, they're human stories mm -hmm. with a science fiction background drop even though they, inter you know, they intimately mm -hmm. integrate with that backdrop. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the usefulness to some degree of, the, of the, the, the technology story, the engineering story has declined over time. Mm -hmm. 
I suppose, as it, the kind of science that we are creating today becomes more complicated, more abstracted it would appear from the physical world as we experience it, all that kind of thing. How important do you think it is to make science fiction accessible to, to people? Well, gee, I think it's as important as any novel is if it's not, you know, accessible. It's, it, well, it's a loaded term, really, sure. what you mean by accessible. Mm. I mean, you can, you can say... Because um, uh, years ago, I got pulled up by um, my then agent in America who said, well, it said, well, okay, interesting novel, but it's not going to sell anything in the Midwest because, you, because in the first two pages you've got a male character wearing makeup. Uh, I said, okay, but it is the future. And, you know, now, you know, that's everybody's yeah, <laughs> space. Yeah. You go around and there's blusher and foundation and concealer and God knows what. Um, so, but at the time, you know, he was right, you know. So it depends what you mean by accessible, really. I, I guess I mean it's readable and understandable rather than yeah. the actual... Well, I have, the way I have that, that thing as well. Uh, I think you should, you know, you should be true to the characters of the story and true to sure. the story. And then I did not worry about simplifying it because you get into this kind of worry that you're going to get into this simplification feedback as the, you know, the lowest common denominator argument well, you keep going mm. down there's no basement when yeah. you start going that you keep going down further and further as you know I, I, I assume a certain level of a sort of sophistication on the part of the reader yeah. that they understand these mm. kind of ideas because you know these, these are knotty ideas I think mm. they're not sim- I hope they're not simplistic I'm not aiming for the simplistic solution, for instance. Sure. So certainly in sort of moral mm-hmm. terms, I'm not aiming for a, for a, a morally uh, black and white world, a world where there is the outcome is really understandable and it has an actual outcome which is fixed and you can say here's the end point of it. I think one of the things that which is one of the things you know the American Revolution had well you've had the American Revolution now paradise (laughs) and you're still arguing about it right what is the nature of happiness 200 years later you know I'm more on that kind of thing you know than than saying well this is this is what we'll do when we solve all our problems we'll have this science fictional thing we'll come in and everything will be great well did you Uh, one one way of defining accessible is is something you would hand to a friend who has never read science fiction mm-hmm. or somebody who's either reads um, literary fiction or who reads thrillers. A, a, a good example, you, t- you, you mentioned your thrillers. Those are, it seems to me, very accessible. They, you could hand yeah. those to a, to a Tom Clancy reader and hopefully they'd realize they're better. Or Whole Wide World is one that's... Is that the right...? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which seems to me would be very inviting to a lot of... Mm-hmm. Uh, especially now, that seems to have come back around, hasn't it? Yeah, thing. yeah, and that's it. Well, uh, it's, the whole wide world was sort of published about what four days after nine eleven, and mm. it was about. Uh, it wasn't about a terrorist attack. Attack. It was about what our response would be to a major terrorist attack. And my mm. my idea was we'd have major internet surveillance and CCTV well, cameras everywhere. Yeah, which was actually was what happened in London. So I just extrapolated what was mm. there. And I just said, well, what what would be the trigger for really? Um, rolling this out in a big way, well, obviously, it would be for the government to use something to make people fearful if they didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's my one big prediction. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry it came to pass, uh, and call me cynical, but I just thought that's that's the way it's going to be. And uh, uh, and I ex- explored in terms of of then, which is only what twelve years ago, mm. what the implications would be. And now, you know, they're way worse. Yeah, <laughs> of course, as usual. 
um, and way gnarlier and way more intricate and way more problematical. But that's always, you know, that's always that that always happens. You know, what you imagine is only the first iteration of reality, yeah, and right. reality is going to come up with much more interesting stuff. So, so one of the interesting things of, of, of actually doing science fiction one is actually because so much interesting stuff is going on. One of the only ways of of dealing with it is to use science fiction mm-hmm. tropes and tools, which is why I think so many uh, are sort of being exfiltrated or being. Uh, yeah. I hate to use the word appropriated because I don't because novelists do this all the time anyway. Because right. I think there's a feedback between science fiction and the literature going on much more um, now than the, the, there has been since probably the new wave. And that was a very limited mm-hmm. part of science fiction then. Um, so, so I think there's a much more interesting thing going going on. You know, there are all kinds of quote mainstream writers unquote um, writing stuff that have been considered very science fiction. I think they're doing it the more knowledge- Yeah, I think they're doing you know? it more knowledgeably than they did. I mean, certain, certain well, people. Cause are- I, yeah, because I think they've grown up reading it exactly. basically, um, and so this is stuff that they know. And that they're not sort of borrowing it and then being disdainful with the the, the, the place mm-hmm. they borrowed it from. They're actually um, using it because from an, from an almost you know an insights perspective, and then doing kind of interesting things from it by plugging it into a different mm-hmm. kind of engine of story than the science fiction engine of story. Well, but it, yeah, the attitude is much different from decades ago. John Updike wrote a science fiction novel, which was frankly awful toward the end of time, and. Paul Theroux wrote the Ozone, and there was a sense there of having contempt for the material that, mm. while they were using it. And now I think you get a sense of just an enormous respect for the material, either as a literary device or, or really thinking through. Um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union is a thought-out yeah. you know, alternate history. Mm. Uh, Although I quarrel with the Updike actually, because you know his first novel was the Paul House. Well, that's was true. a science fiction novel. It was set in the future. Uh, but there was um, a lot, in, in and this. he did you know his uh, uh, memoirs and uh, some of his mm. sort of autobiographical novels um, of the farm. You know, he grew up reading science fiction. He did. You know, he was a kid in the fifties. That's what kid in the fifties did. That stuff was around. There was standings mm. everywhere on the news newsstands, and you just go and get one for ten cents and read this stuff. Um, so you know, had a way. So I agree. Uh, there, there are other problems with *Toward the End of Time*. I think rather than, <laughs> rather than it being a bad, it was a bad science fiction novel, but it wasn't a bad science fiction novel because I had contempt for science fiction. I think. I think it, you may be it right. It had other, it had other problems. Um, um, but uh, the ozone certainly did because it had it actually had a naked contempt for the thing it was mm. trying to be, which is always a problem with the, if you're a novelist is is that you don't like like the milieu you're in. You know, you can you can tell that instantly as a reader. Mm. Somebody, I don't know who it was, and I think it probably was uh, someone British, came up with the term anti-science fiction to refer to uh, people like Michael Crichton, for example, mm-hmm. where the dynamic of the story, the dynamic of the attitude towards science is exactly the opposite of the characteristic scientific attitude. Yeah. When, um, well, it's the old dreadful warning, isn't it? But it's, it's a dreadful warning. Everybody, I, everybody forgets, because it's not in the film, but everybody forgets that the hero in Jurassic Park is a lawyer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not sci- you know, not the mathematician, which you know. So the guy who comes up, you know, he's he's a risk assessment guy, I think. And my memory is correct; it's been years since I read it. Yeah, but um, Crichton always did not like science, and mm. always the outcomes were terrible. And always it was science had to be stopped, yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons I'm sure he set all his novels in remote locations where you could you could shut down something at the bottom of the ocean, or you could shut mm-hmm. down 
something in, in, in Jurassic yeah. Park because yeah. otherwise it's going to take over the world. Yeah, um, yeah. The outcome is always yeah. The outcome is always we're going to smooth things out, cut right. it away, and everything will be back to normal. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like disaster management. Um, but things aren't back to normal, you know. They never are, you know. After nine eleven, things aren't back to normal. After, no. after the, you know, the Japanese um, thing, they're not back to normal, mm. and so on and so forth. They do change the landscape, and that's what science fiction is about. Is is always to say, you know, um, well, it's a per- it's going to be a permanent change, you know. Even if the aliens defeated, well, you know, it's going to have a permanent effect on on us. On it's going to have a psychic scar. It's going to have an effect on every aspect of our society. Mm. So let's write about that. Um, go ahead. I was going to say, you spent nearly 10 years working on the Quiet War series, I guess. Ooh, longer, longer, longer. longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember, I think um, the first story uh, was probably in 1998, something like that. Okay. So mm, okay. 15 years, yeah. Years. I'm probably thinking about it a bit before then as well. So let's say 15 years, yeah. And you've, you know, you've just had, back in July, I think it was, What's supposed to be the, the final yeah. the Quiet War novel, at least? Are are you done with that kind of a future at this time? Do you think? Pretty much, I think. Actually, yeah. I mean, at this stage, because I did two books which were set like two hundred years in the future. It, it, specifically, it was approximately one revolution of Pluto around the sun. Mm-hmm. There was a reason for that, which came up in the Gardens of the Sun. Um, and then I jumped forward 1,500 years. And obviously there are lots of gaps you could go mm-hmm. back and fill it in. But the way um, uh, it finished up, I think, is kind of a closure for that kind mm. of uh, the way, that kind of aspect of yeah. human exploration of the solar system. So, you know, I, I came up with, blurted out a few vignettes earlier yeah. <laughs> this year as a kind of exercise, really, and to get, and to get rid of a few things that were still knocking around in my head so just get, getting them down on paper it's like right that's out of my head now I don't have to think about it anymore um, it's, it's somebody else's problem you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I stuck them on my blog and then I, I made a little ebook which I put them in as well mm. and, and so there's that but I don't think I'm really going to go back to it because I'm, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm interested in some other stuff now well th- that was my next question where are you looking to head next? Ooh, um, well, I'm thinking about aliens again now, which is mm. how I started out my career, kind of as a novelist, was thinking about aliens, and I'm thinking about them again because they kind of became very unfashionable for a very long time in science mm-hmm. fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they are, I've noticed they're kind of creeping back in again. They, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure why they become unfashionable. They did. Um, maybe we just we'd thought enough about them, and we they just kind of need to rest up from thinking about aliens. They were. You know, you had like in Schismatrix, they're aliens, yeah, right. But in the in the novel, they kind of appear right at the end as like angels, as messengers of a different yeah. kind of thing. And the novel achieved closure by doing that science fiction thing of closing, but at the same time expanding out hugely at the same time, which is a trick when science time. fiction, yeah. yeah, science fiction falls off. And um, there wasn't, you know, they 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 were a device rather than um, something that were inter- was integral to the story. Um, not saying that's the wrong wrong thing to have been. Actually, they're, they're a very actually, useful device. Something very similar does happen in your yeah. local report, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, right, spoilers. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of thinking. Uh, uh, okay, so so what happens if aliens arrive and they want to help us, it, but in their mysterious alien kind of way? Um, but they don't do anything specific to us. They just say, "Here's a few things. Get on with it." 
what does that do to mm. us and what do we do to the tools yeah. so I've, I've been again interrogating that in a couple of Jackaroo stories yeah. mm. okay um, now I'm doing a novel about it and then there'll, then there'll be another novel which will open out even more and that'll be the end of that I think really um, but there two, there'll be two self-contained novels so oh. yeah uh, so one will be kind of pretty near future and then one will be starting fairly near future and then zooming away off into the far distance do they link up at any point in the sense uh, there no there won't be any real crossover it'll be just like here's, here's one aspect of the story this mm -hmm. is what happens immediately after and then here's what happens sometimes later and sometimes later and there'll be a little sort of feedback from what happens at the end of one novel uh, mm -hmm. as, as in uh, uh, the end of In the Mouth of the Whale yeah. and mm -hmm. Evening Empires there's a little crossover bit right at the end uh, of, of in the mouth of the well, and that's integral to Evening Empire. We don't need to have read In the Mouth of the Well to pick up mm, what's yeah, going on right. in Evening Empire. So I'm kind of trying to get away from. Well, for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right. Not I'm writing a trilogy by omitting the uh, you know difficult middle volume. volume. Middle so they're just two <laughs> volumes. I always find that's if it's a difficult. There's nothing. You know, sure. the problem is nothing go, can go on much in the middle volume. So let's just omit that. You mm, know, yeah. and just do the two. Um, volumes, but then why should we have any real links between the two in terms of characters and situation? Sure. Um, just in terms of ideas, so you can just examine that idea from two different angles and two different perspectives. Yeah, but they're linked in terms of being set in the same fictional. Well, I mean, that's, universe. that's uh, yeah. one of the things that fascinates me about what I, the term world building, which is sometimes problematical because there are always workshops on it and they're usually about fantasy it turns out. But once you've constructed something like a, a, a given situation, your aliens or, or the, the quiet war, then it seems to me you could write any number of novels within that context. And I guess the question I'm thinking of when you mentioned aliens, are you, are you beginning with that context and thinking of that as a story generator or are you thinking of a story and thinking this would work best in that context. Yeah, uh, both. I, th I mean, part of the problems with my world building, and it, it causes me endless trouble with reconciliation of um, facts and uh, characters and situations and mm -hmm. dates especially, is that I kind of uh, explore it by writing stories. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't sit down and plot out timelines and devices and, mm -hmm. and uh, which characters would be most useful to tell the story. I kind of find a character and a viewpoint and uh, figure out um, what things look like from her viewpoint and as she moves through the story we see more more, I, or I see more and more of it and more details pop out but they kind yeah. of pop out at random and there's also lots of feedback from what I'm getting, up, getting in the world you know mm. that's around me as well you know I'm a big Twitter freak unfortunately <laughs> and <laughs> takes up far too much time but it does deliver some nice gems of, of useful stuff yeah. that I can then incorporate um, or follow through and mm -hmm. it gives a little link in, you know, a little link that will open up into something really interesting because again, as I say, all these science journalists for instance, sort of tweeting and twittering away and giving these mm -hmm. great links and stuff so you're getting all this immediate stuff so it's fabulous, it's like being sitting in this huge Aladdin's cave toy shop wow, all this <laughs> stuff what can I use? Well, all of it I want to use it <laughs> yeah. but you can't, so you know you have to pick what you, what you want but um um, so there is this kind of serendipitous process mm -hmm. that goes on, whatever's closest to me and whatever I think, well, hey, that's going to fit in here. So um, it's sort of patchwork together rather mm -hmm. than planned, planned out at any great length. But the characters are where you start. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. I was I was listening to a conversation once between an unnamed best-selling science fiction writer and John Crowley, in which the unnamed writer was explaining to John Crowley that you do all these charts, you get your timelines, you figure out the world and so forth, and then your characters will just emerge from that. Mm. And Crowley said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I have some sympathy to Crowley's point of view, really. And, and there is another way, you know, there's this workshopping thing where you can, um, you, you chart out characters' likes, dislikes, mm. what's their favourite meal, how they react to people who are richer than they are, and how they react to people who are poorer than they are, blah, 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 blah. And I think, well, you can do all that, but then why do you want to write about them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you find out by how they interact, you know, and what they do and what their likes and dislikes are, and, and so on. And... Uh, I try not to um, sort of peg you know, little uh, um, odd little bits of behaviour and say that's mm. characterisation, you know, and odd likes and dislikes and say that's characterisation. Um, years back, you know, when my first novel, I did do this, one of the characters had this yen for Shakespeare, I don't know why, probably because I was into Shakespeare a lot of the time, mm. so she had this really annoying habit of using Shakespeare quotes everywhere. <laughs> I toned down by the time I used her in the third novel I wrote um, because I realised how damn stupid it was to be doing this Um, and I've tried to avoid that ever since you know and it's much much more again uh, because I'm really interested in the way that history informs things so it's the way their history informs who they are Mm -hmm. when you meet them at a specific point in time and space but they're obviously dragging all their history in with them so how their reactions how they react to things and what they do and um, to things when they're confronted with them is informed by as as you know in real life is informed by um, what they've been doing in the past you know not in this Freudian or Skinner box sense um, which is a very mechanical thing mm. but um, in a much more organic in way in a way that might be the failure of some earlier science fiction like Hal Clement for example who certainly pioneered um, alien concepts alien planets um, alien biology and then everybody talked like a guy from Brooklyn in 1945. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And the editors didn't seem to mind that. Yeah, because you, you're interested in the aliens. Exactly. You weren't right. interested in the character's reaction to the aliens specifically. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everybody's so gung ho about yeah. <laughs> eating yeah. aliens. You know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, hey, there's this guy. Maybe it's living in New York where, you know, you're sitting in the subway train and you're sitting right. next to somebody who's speaking a language. You have no idea what that language <laughs> is. You're not a clue. It's got glottal clicks in it. What? Uh, but wait a minute it, it could be some African language but the guy is clearly from somewhere some cold place mm-hmm. and you know it's so where the hell you know you, the, 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 there's you know always the jokes the aliens landed years ago and they're living in Queens oh, yeah. uh, running <laughs> running a coffee shop you know yeah, yeah. car repair business or whatever you know right yeah that goes back to Clifford Simak and people like that but it's, it's a neat trope yeah it's a neat no trope. I love the Clifford Simak stories precisely because he was trying to um bring the kind of aliens again into the human experience, mm. you know, this whole idea of just this guy who was the link, you know, between Earth and the Galactic Empire, but he was just living in this right. suburban yeah. house or yeah. whatever, uh-huh. you know. But also, from an English point of view as well, wait a minute, that guy's really alien too. Because mm. yeah. you have to remember, you know, you encounter all this American science fiction, you're going, well, America is like an alien country to us. Yeah. You do di- things differently there, you guys. <laughs> it's getting more and more alien to us too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we should probably wind up because there's a convention to get back to and we mm. try not to sort of go on too long, but it has been wonderful having you with us. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Oh, it's just fun. Yeah. And we'll look forward to, I guess, the first Jack Rue book sometime next year. 
um, the year after, I think. Year actually, after. yeah. It's called Something Coming Through at Break. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something until then, Evening's Empires is in stores. And I will talk to you again next time. All right. Okay.